Welcome to my podcast, Two Whiskies and a Cigar. I'm your host, Frankie Sabini. This podcast's sole purpose is to bring you knowledge, motivation and help within your chosen industry or sport. I'll be sitting down each week to talk to people who have either achieved a high level of success in business or sport and individuals who have amazing skills and experiences that the world needs to hear. My aim is to help as many people as I can by gaining insights from industry leaders and athletes. So please, pour yourself a whiskey, light a cigar, sit back and enjoy. Today we have George Dixon. George is a restaurateur. Starting his business in his late teens, George had to navigate through a lot of ups and downs and like everybody else, when COVID hit, he worried whether his business was going to survive. But like a true entrepreneur, George see a gap in the market and not only survived COVID, he thrived and come out the other end stronger. George, welcome to the show. Very welcome to you. Thanks for, that. Thanks for having me. It's all right, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Obviously, we tried to book it a few times before, but obviously, you lead a very busy life nowadays, don't you? The distance is a nightmare as well, bud, so I'm, I'm happy to be doing it on Zoom, but we'll have to have uh, two whiskeys and a cigar soon enough. Yeah, definitely, mate, definitely. Uh, just for everybody listening who obviously don't know your background, what business did you start, how old was you, and, and why did you decide to start that at that particular time? So 2012, so talking just over 10 years now, in the middle of summer, we, we being me and my business partner, Will Bowden from school, uh, bought a small greasy spoon cafe in Gidea Park, Romford. Um, and yeah, just it was something I'd always thought I would do well in is making money out of one of the basic things in life, you know, like health or food or, you know, well-being, that kind of industry. So food for me felt like the natural sort of passage to towards being wealthy one day and, and learning the ropes of that industry. So we, we bought a little cafe. Nice. Yeah, it, it, it was the perfect apprenticeship in food business, is the way I like to think of it, because it's it's such a big menu when you've got a little cafe, you know, it's uh, yeah. breakfast, lunches, dinners, your old Doris here, your builders here, people who want something a bit more refined on the weekends, you're trying to cater for so many different markets and, and sort of niche groups of people that you learn very quickly how to poach an egg, fry an egg, make an omelette all at the same time and get them all on the same plate at the same time, you know, like, so it was, it was so, a good apprentice. So was you a chef before you started? Like, what made you want to go into the food industry then? No, I wasn't. I've always been keen at cooking, keen to cook in a kitchen. Um, I don't really know. I think maybe it was something that unconsciously was going on in my mind long before it was a conscious decision to buy a cat because in my yearbook and i can pull this up and we can put it on the podcast when you post it is um it says most likely to be entrepreneur chef and i don't remember saying that i don't remember <laughs> saying that i said that at 16 years old and four years later i had a cafe so um unconsciously or not it came together in, in the way it was supposed to that's mad isn't it mm. is anyone else in your family like Good at cooking or, or chefing or? Well, like yourself, I've got quite a strong Italian blood. So I think it's something that sort of runs in my veins, that kind of like passion for a bit of heat in the kitchen and sort of, it's like a blind panic, but without the panic, you know, you're rushing around and you're a bit of salt there and a bit of this and a dash of this. And a, 
I always loved that. Like I remember cooking a roast dinner for my family on Christmas day when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I just loved that responsibility. So I think I like the responsibility in a kitchen. The fact that everyone's waiting on you to, to bring the goods and it's almost that pressure. You have to thrive under that pressure, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think like to be, to be an entrepreneur, you've got to be able to thrive under pressure, but then to be in a kitchen and an entrepreneur, I think that's just, that's just next level pressure, don't it? I mean, cooking a roast at like 13, 14, I'm nearly 30 in a couple of weeks and I still have never cooked a roast. <laughs> yeah. Darren doesn't let me cook them nowadays, but you know. Does he not? It was a good rough, but Darren likes to be in the kitchen. I think, I don't want to misplace my words here. I think there's masculine and feminine energy within a kitchen. And when you've got two masculine who want to cook and it's it's that masculine's house, you allow that energy to, yeah. to rule the day, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. So what are you, so what, what where, where are you now? Because obviously going into COVID, obviously it's a couple of years ago now, but going into COVID, like everybody else wondering where their business was going to be, how it was going to survive. Like, how did you come through that? And where, where have you got to since then? Because obviously you, you really do have a, a, a success story from something so bad in the world. Do you know what I mean? It's a really difficult one to explain without sounding like I hit pure potluck because we sort of positioned ourselves for years prior to COVID to be this almighty burger delivery service that didn't rely on Uber or Just Eat or Deliveroo. We had our website and we went through so many difficult years of building that website where like the orders were less than we wanted. And we, we knew we could just jump on one of those other platforms I just mentioned and get the orders printed like that. But then you're just giving stuff a big commission away. So we, we spent years positioning ourselves into a, an area where we would have five or six drivers in on a Friday night and then a Saturday night. And when COVID hit, and we saw like McDonald's closing, KFC closing. It, it honestly felt like I had to read the the small the small print, the fine and you know, the T's and C's of whatever Boris was saying at the time because it felt too good to be true. Everyone has to close, but takeaways can stay open. And big companies and corporations like McDonald's and KFC and so on and so forth were not positioned to to attack that market. And we were like. I get tingles saying it now, bro. My hairs and the back of my neck are up. Like it was, it was pooty tang time. It was come on, let's let's take this market big time. So since then, very long story short, opened two permanent locations in Wales, one in Swansea, one in Cardiff, um, <coughs> without loans, which was a big thing for us as well. We've we've been a company that's like struggled against our loans that have kept us surviving over the years. And when COVID came, we did well enough during a certain amount of months, possibly even over a year to get to a point where we bought two shops in hard earned cash. And it was like, cool. Now we're in a position, even if the, you know, COVID, if it dips back down, we're still going to be in a position that was better than before coasting along and sort of more oh, yeah. financially. Astute and oh yeah. You, you, you've got assets now, haven't you? Rather than being in debt, you've got assets. So if anything does bad happen, you, you do have two, obviously two restaurants, what you can, raised it against, I suppose, if anything sort of touch wood yeah. doesn't, but anything didn't happen. Uh, so how... Sorry, go on. No, no, go on, go on. I want to hear from you. I was going to say, so before COVID, we were always trying to get a seat at the table, whether it was with a private investment firm or local sort of entrepreneurs who had done well for themselves, guys from the man kind of thing. 
we always wanted a seat at the table in terms of come see the vision, believe in the vision, buy into the vision and come with us because me and Will always knew where we were going to go or what we wanted to do. And then since COVID, it's people approaching us to say, come be part of the table. And we're like, well, actually, we've done it. Not done it now. We've not made it. I've not got 50 restaurants. I'm not a multi-corporation sort of millionaire, millionaire all over the place. But we're much more attractive now. And like, as I say, maybe a bit of luck, maybe a bit of a fortunate positioning. But like our setting ourselves up over them years got us to a position where now we're being invited to the table rather than actively mm. trying to knock on the door to get to the table, you know? So basically, you've become an overnight success with 10 years behind you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all, we all know that story. Anyone watching this who's an entrepreneur or business person knows the the overnight 10-year success, you know. Yeah, no, that's good. So how do you think, obviously, I, I know I know a lot about your business, obviously. For anyone listening who's, who doesn't know, George owns Smoke and Griddle, um, by far the best burger place in, I, I was going to say Essex, but in Wales as well now. <laughs> but um, 100%. Yeah, South UK. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But like, you had a certain way of like a very forward-thinking way of building your business. Um, obviously with social media and things like that. Like, how, how did you know from earlier early on that you had to build it through social media, or did that come as like a secondary? And then, like, how did you attack that? Obviously, your social media presence. How did you get that good at it and, and build a brand that way? Again, I mean, I wasn't like this person who posted on Facebook every day before I had a business, but, you know, your Facebook memories pop up every day and they make me laugh on a daily basis, things that happened 12, 13, 11 years ago. Um, and then I see the ones from 10, 9, 8 years ago and they're all to do with business, you know, and like, I think at first I was just posting on my personal page and it may have even been the fact that someone said to me at one point, you need to stop posting on your personal page and make a business page. And we had like a cafe on the Heath page before smoking griddle. Um, and I mean, yeah, I guess the timing was just divine. It worked out well for us in, in regards to 10 years ago, Facebook was the place to be posting photos of food before photos of food were what people knew they wanted on their screens. You know, we, I won't say we were one of the first people doing it, but like we were in that first crop of businesses who really hit social media and like allowed that, you know, upward trajectory. So for you, is it important for any business to, to really push that social media side or do you think you can still grow it without that social media side? I think you can grow it without, it really depends on a lot. Your demographics, your sort of, your, where, are, where are you based? You know, are you outside uh, Oxford Street? You know, you don't need to, advertise if you're outside Oxford Street Station and you've got a little hot dog stall but you might need to if you're outside of Romford Station per se like the shop we open you know you might need to push those things um I don't think it's all to do with social media because I think not everyone's going to get social media I'm quite fortunate in the fact that I started earlier with it I've been able to follow all the trends over the years and I kind of have a very well-rounded perception of how to do social media across the different platforms now you'll get a business owner who may have to outsource that work and outsourcing that work is a, is a large expense. Social media is not cheap. Um, so I wouldn't advise open a burger shop or a cafe or do something like I've done and re rely on social media unless you can do it yourself. Because if I had to pay for the social media I've done for this company over the years, 
we may not have had other opportunities I could have said yes to, like events that we've had to put pitch fees down on or new equipment that would have boosted our volume on a Saturday night. Things like that, you've got to be a bit considerate of the expense versus the time it's taking you to put that content out. So we've obviously, you, you, you have a great social media following and now you've opening in Cardiff and Wales, right? Did that help you open there or was it just the, you got there first of all and then that built up itself? Well, it's funny how it works. So I didn't anticipate, so Swansea was our first shop in Wales and that was in 2019. I didn't anticipate it going as well as it went. So when we announced, we did a collaboration with a local bar that wasn't really selling food at the time. And we were going to do like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and special bank holiday thing. So we posted on their social media, Smoke and Griddle, you know, London burger brand, and we sort of hit it like, you can be, what's the word? I don't know, elaborate in the way you word things, you know, London burger brand. Yeah, we're in Rumpton, which is a London borough, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a slight exaggeration. Well, it's, it's technically true, but to people in Swansea, they were going, oh, this amazing burger brand. We look at these double stack burgers and this Dunkin' cheese. And again, I think with all due respect to Wales, it's a little bit behind the times in terms of like digitally and the high street, what it can offer in terms of food. Seen a massive growth in the last three years. Mm. And again, I feel like we were quite fortunate. fortunate. I don't know that word. We were quite I bet it's right, isn't it? Yeah. That market when we did again, I think if we hit it last year, we might be late to that party, but when we hit it, it was like they were dying, they were just crying out for sort of like social media uh, trends to hit them, smoking griddle with a new place on the block. And Swansea is now like replicated what we've done. Three or four new guys on the block all use us as their like inspiration, whether they admit it or not. You guys know who you are. Um, no problem with that, you know, the competition is all healthy, you know, it, it breeds more success for the people who can maintain the volume at a good standard. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think it's, um, well, I've got an uncle who's in business as well, got a restaurant, and he always says, everything I do, they all seem to copy me, but a good thing is, obviously, he does it first, so he's always going to be one step ahead. If, if, if you're always sort of reading that market and then they're following you behind, obviously, you're always in that position to be one step ahead, so... It's not, it's yeah. not a bad thing people following you. Yeah, I mean, I learned quite early on that if you focus too often on the competition, you just become part of this like vicious circle of who's doing what. I used mm. to sit in my cab in the first six months of business and watch the queues out of the door on the bakery on the corner, you know, the one on the drill roundabout. Yeah. Um, I used to watch the queues out the door for sandwiches at lunch going, we sell sandwiches and coffee. Let's change our prices. Let's... And you drive yourself. Excuse my French, you drive yourself fucking mad doing that. Like, so the quicker you stop worrying about that and you just worry about doing what you do and doing it well, like maybe finding a niche instead of having something so similar, and then you can, you know, you can flourish in your own market. So I don't worry about competition. Um, and even when people call their burger the classic or the ranch, or, they're very generic names. And I knew that when we named them, they're not like names that are specific to me or, or like meaningful in any way. They're very, run-of-the-mill, you know, classical burger names. So, again, I have no problem with people stealing names or ingredients or even like for like the burger because, again, the proof is in the pudding. 
Oh yeah, exactly. And I think it's <clears throat> it shows as well the amount of years you've been doing it and and success you've had over the years as well. Just want to touch sort of on the the, the Swansea. Obviously, you you got there at the right time. Like, what made you open a shop in Swansea? Like, why why there and why at that moment? Well, I'll have to be brutally honest now. So, 2019. So, 2018, I went for a bit of a difficult breakup on a personal term. Um, and my business partner, Will, was with a girl who was very much smitten with at the time. And I just kind of spent the summer more alone than I wanted to be, realising that, like, some people I might have regarded as, like, good friends were actually more just kind of, like, people I knew or, like, more like associate level than actual friends. Um and I don't know, I found myself yearning for like a new, like pastures new per, per se. So I kind of rekindled with the girl I'd broken up with, but she was living back in Swansea. Um, and then I made the decision to start going there once or twice a month. And I just really fell in love with the landscape. It was so beautiful there. Like the pace of life, being from, you know, where we're from, like London sort of areas and working in and around the city and that. We don't realise that, like, even if you're not in the rat race on a daily basis, you live the rat race on a daily basis because of the pace of life. Everyone's a million mile an hour. No one is patient at traffic lights. Everyone is bibbing. Yeah. Everything's crazy, and it's like pandemonium on a daily basis. Then you step into somewhere like Wales, and it's like stepping back into, like, 1998, where everyone smiles down the street, and people wave and still say hello, and, like, you haven't got to walk with your head down and don't look anyone in the eye. You might get stabbed. Like, that, that's lost in Swansea, so... I got to Swansea and I felt like I'd spent eight years in Romford trying to do something with a business and we got to a certain level of success and it was okay. And then I went to Swansea and it was meant to be, in all rights of the term, a sabbatical. You know, it was meant to be a bit of a break for me. I'd, I'd sort of exhausted myself, like getting it to where I'd got. Finances were a bit crippling and sort of we were surviving, but it wasn't an enjoyable survive, like a, an existence. So I went there and... <coughs> Honestly, I saw opportunity within like days. I didn't. I wasn't looking for opportunity. I remember applying for a job. You'll laugh, but at McDonald's as a warehouse operative, and it was like a three a.m. to seven a.m. four days a week. It was working at about three hundred and five pound a week, and I thought I'll be done by seven a.m. every day. I can go out and and build my business or find something to do that you know interests me. Um, and I remember the woman at McDonald's saying, is it's not a conflict of interest. Your whole CV is you, this career you've built of a burger restaurant. <laughs> um, so very long story short, I got bored very quickly in a, in a small place with a very small town mentality. And I went in there with this big city mentality that I didn't even realise I had at the time. And instead of me like actively pursuing things, I was only really gently sort of like brushing on doors and doors were just swinging open. Well, have you, well, have you, well, have, and I had my pick of where I could be and I picked the right place and it had the right buzz. And before we knew it, it was 26 weeks sold out for fully, fully booked for 26 weeks in the place called the optimist. And that was the start of Swansea smoke and griddle and the hype around it. And this like this sense of community that still exists in places like Swansea. And I'm sure many places in the UK that are not London has sense of community and sort of like, word of mouth is real you know it's not such an yeah. not such a thing in Romford because you know a couple of friends could tell each other but it's not that but in Swansea where the whole community hears about it you can quickly become a make or break kind of business you know yeah no definitely I've just recently moved out to the country and like you're saying what you're saying it's you ain't got to walk down the street with like a 
it kind of being in places like that gives you a chip on your shoulder, doesn't it? When you move out to the country, the chip's gone because every, everyone's happy, everyone's smiling. Like you get people who probably like think their faces or whatever in, in that particular area, but considering where we come from, it's, it's nowhere near, obviously, the threat what we had growing up. So, like 100%, I think going to Swansea and, and cracking that, I think that was one of the probably best decisions you ever made. But like, it's that mindset, though. Like you, You've gone there... You've applied for a job at McDonald's just to see what you want to do. But it's that entrepreneurial mindset where you just can't sit still. Like you're always growing no matter what. Even though you're you, you're happy for the slower way of life, you, you still, you can't, it's, it's like an addiction. Like you, you're addicted to that next deal all the time. Do you say you, like that's, that's you or because or, I know that's definitely me. Yeah, to an extent. It's, again, it's an unconscious thing. So I guess that, it's programmed into people with that entrepreneurial kind of spirit and I'm not going to get into like the spectrum and how people might be or might not be on the spectrum but like I've thought about myself over the years like what wires me in the way that I'm wired to do these things and I I mean I must have like ADD or ADHD or something along them lines because again it's like you said that boredom kicks in and like three weeks can feel like I've sat and done nothing for six months and then mm. within three weeks of being in Swansea, we've got like a trial opening night and then we do a few good nights. And before we know it, we're like six weeks in and we're fully booked for the next 26 weeks after that. And it's like, this is crazy. But that's crazy to anyone looking from the outside in. To me, it was like, ah, oh, fucking hell, Swansea was a good market to crack. Where's next? You know, like I'm already thinking where's next. And ultimately, that's why me and my girlfriend who rekindled didn't work out because I'd said, next for me is going to be like Cardiff or Bath or Bristol or one of these places along the M4 corridor. And she'd literally turn around and said, I'm settled back in Swansea now. This is me. Like if I have a family, I want it to be here. I don't want to move. I thought, well, that doesn't support my ambition. So um, ultimately that didn't work out. And I stayed to support the business. And um, yeah, there's a whole nother sort of story attached to that with Will then meeting his partner while I was a single man there. And Will now lives in Swansea and manages that shop with his fiance and has a lovely cushy little life. And I live in Cardiff managing our newest addition to the restaurant chain. So how long has Cardiff been going? We opened that last last August. So quite a while now. Yeah, not far off 18 months, really. Like, I guess February will be about 18 months. Is that guy that... Yeah, it has to be fair. Is, is that going as well as, as how Swansea got received? Because obviously Cardiff's a bigger city, isn't it? So it's, I suppose it's not as small-town mentality. Again, Cardiff, with all due respect to any of my Welsh followers and people that might be watching this, you've got to understand the small town I'm from in London is called Romford, which has got a population of just under half a million people. Cardiff is the capital city of this country and it has a population of just over 300,000 people. So there's a massive difference there again. So what they see as a capital city in this big bustling city, I see as another, you know, well, well off sort of well populated town for me to do on a, on, you know, on a respect level, I guess the capital city is really cool. You can see it as you walk around some of the architecture and things like that. It's, it's awesome. It's better than a town. Don't get me wrong, but population wise and demographic wise, I attack it the same as any other sort of town I would look at. Um, yeah. It's done, it's done relatively well. It's our flagship store. I would say now we've spent, the most money and time on sort of bringing it to the ultimate vision of how we see smoke and griddle for a customer's, you know, perception. So you told me you had a goal with that particular one. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember what you said about it? 
I have a lot of goals every day, and <laughs> some of them, uh, some of our own goals. So you tell me. So you you want to make it the most Instagrammable place uh, in in Wales, I think, or in or UK, or, or one of them. Are you there yet? I'd say we can't be far off it. Like I'm disappointed in the reception. That not the reception. That's the wrong way of doing it. Because people are like, people think it's outstanding. People love it. People take photos of it. But it's almost like you've got to put something on the menu that says, "Don't forget to take a photo." I don't know yeah. what's changed in the last year or so, but like, I don't know. We do get a lot of Instagram traction on there. A lot of people tagging it, but. I don't know. A lot of new restaurants have opened as well in the last year, and people have been jumping on this bandwagon of restaurants. During COVID, so many closed that there were so many cheap properties available that we've had this like influx of street traders becoming bricks and mortar traders. And what I find in places like Swansea and Cardiff is each one of those new businesses gets a limelight for a certain amount of time, whether it's a week, six weeks, or five months. Like um, we had a, a really good, solid six months after opening of like we were the place to be seen and, and have food and, and we slowly but surely integrated alcohol and this new garden space and that. For me personally, next year, next summer will be where we really hit it with that tropical garden vibe that we made and all the neon lights and uh, cocktail pictures and things like that. So I'm waiting for the second coming of Smoke and Griddle at the moment. We're just steady. We're sort of going along through the motions. We, we do a minimum of breaking even. Most weeks we make a, a steady profit nothing to scream and shout about but like like every business we have our day you know yeah definitely i mean i obviously as you know a few friends who who come four or five months ago now and they they couldn't believe how, how good it was oh, yeah, they loved it i thought it was... oh yeah that's yeah, really? the boys tagging that yeah mm. yeah we look up to them you know that's what you need though you need a few good parties of the right people in the right communities and before you know it, the word of mouth has spread yeah 100 percent I don't remember if you said about your uh, your van, what you got, your smoking griddle van. Did you say about that at the beginning? No. So, again, from like a really honest standpoint, if that truck wasn't out right now doing what it's doing, which is a really busy event that we're really fortunate to be part of, um, then I think we might struggle in January and February and like have to look at maybe like, I don't want to say it, but maybe cutting some staff or like maybe taking my salary away for a couple of months, that kind of thing, or whatever it may have been. I don't think it would get that drastic, but you have to kind of consider these um, eventualities as a possible outcome because I do think we've got a really difficult year ahead of us in, in the industry I'm in. So I hate to focus on those things. So I don't give like active focus to it on a daily basis, but I consider those eventualities because. I would come unstuck if if that day came around and I'd not even considered it. Mm. But I'm a big believer. In, like if you give 100% focus all the time, that's going to be what manifests. So if like all I do is focus on a daily basis of how tough next year is going to be, and January and February we might we might make half of what we're making in December, and I might not I might struggle to pay bills. Then that's going to happen, you know. Um, whereas I just think we'll survive. We've we got this far. We'll survive, you know. I'll, I'll duck and dive and I'll make things happen and, and, and we will survive, like, ultimately. That's, that's just the way it has to be. Well, yeah, I think if you look at it on a, on a negative standpoint, your brain's not going to be working positively enough to be able to turn the negativity around. Whereas if you're on a, a your brain's working positive and something like negative happens, you're already in that negative uh, positive mindset. So you can you can turn it around. 
That's... Yeah, well, I, I really do think that like active problem solving is like the biggest part of any entrepreneur I know's job on a daily basis. Being able to like directly deal with a situation like politically, pragmatically, however you want to word it, in that fashion that allows it to like we don't break, we don't even reverse, like we we're just in that direction and nothing really stops us, you know. Like you might slow down a little bit, a couple of knots, but you're still swiftly moving in the right direction. Like you can't mm. stop. Well, if you stop, you end up moving backwards. Well, you do, yeah, because it's really hard to get going again. You know, um, I've had bouts of depression over the years. I've worked with therapists and uh, lo and behold, you become a better, more rounded individual because of the battles you face. But you, at the moment, I'm trying to seek more balance than anything in life because it's something I've neglected for so many years. You know, as many entrepreneurs who might be watching this will fully be able to understand as yourself might be able to understand you neglect your personal sort of duties to yourself for happiness and prosperity in, in other parts of your life for for a pound note and a little bit of success, you know. So, um, so how, how are you trying to seek balance? So I've, I've recently got involved with a girlfriend who's very good for me, very nice. Congratulations. Um, thank you. It's, you know, I think girlfriends come and go, but... I think when you do the right work on yourself and you attract what you're looking for when you understand the longer term vision, then you can work back on it. So I'll be brutally honest here. Until about four or five months ago, I smoked cannabis every day of my life for the last 12 years. Something I've never actually been honest about in terms of people, if they know me or not, people might have a perception of me. And I'm pretty sure that perception of me wouldn't have even slipped into people's minds. So that's been my life for a long time. So I got into this... Um, conscious belief that smoking cannabis was part of my success any good idea i ever had was probably while i was high on the influence of smoking um so it became part of my belief system so over the years that was that so then i've been working with a guy recently who works with high level people his name's fidel bohill by the way very good i can anyone wants to reach out and get his details that's fine um it's not a cheap course to do but because it's not cheap, because the way I'm wired, it kind of forced me to do the work, even if I didn't want to do it. So he challenged me, stop smoking. And I said, okay, all right, I'll have a tolerance break. You know, like anyone who knows about smoking has done over the years. Two weeks off is not going to sort of give you that idea of how much more productive can I be with six months off or, or just stopping entirely. So I stopped smoking. I got fitter generally made me more positive because I'm up earlier in the morning and I'm not full of like a sugar overdose from the night before. Um, I got clear on like my vision of where I wanted to be. I never knew if I wanted a wife or kids or what kind of house I wanted to live in and under some fairly deep hypnotic states and sort of a lot of exploratory sort of goals and vision boards and, and, and quite deep therapy. I got to the idea of like, what does my life look like in 10 years? And does that guy still eat a pack of hobnobs with his hand down his trousers and smoke a joint every night? Probably not. Like, probably not. But, like, work your way backwards and, like, that either stops today, six months, a year, three years, five years from now, whatever it may be. And, like, I'm I'm not really one for, like, wasting time. So I had that. now I've got that vision of how, how do I look and feel and present myself to the world in 10 years from now? What is 40-year-old George Dixon doing with his life and how does the world see him and how does he feel about the world? 
he's not the guy that I was six months ago. So I've been on this massive transformation process. I spoke to you about him the other day. I didn't speak this sort of deeply about it. Um, I would highly recommend you don't have to have bags of money in the bank to seek out this kind of work. There are YouTube videos, there are books. You need to just be prepared to do the work though. Like, and for me, it was a financial burden. I paid all of the money to do the work, which forced me to do it and I feel better for it. But anyone who's struggling, I, I highly recommend to just seek out the problem, identify the problem. And I guarantee there's a book for that exact problem or a YouTube blog for that exact problem. So without me banging on about it too much, being able to pivot so sort of dramatically can be great. You know, like I, I now see that every decision I ever made that was excellent for smoking griddle. Yes, I may have been high when I made that decision, but I probably would have made the decision a lot quicker if I weren't high. You know, I might, I might have six by now, you know, but swings and roundabouts. I don't regret a thing and I'm really happy to have the work I've done. Right. So, I wanted to, to, to ask you then quickly, what made you want to go to this guy? Obviously, you went to this guy because you went to get balanced. But like, what, what, again, I'm asking this because, as you said, like you said, I might feel the same or other entrepreneurs feel the same. You don't have that balance in your life. It's, it's all work. What, what give you the kick to think I need balance or I need to sort myself out. I don't want to smoke weed anymore or not even don't want to smoke weed. Like, why did you take that step in the first place? So I'd actively sought out a, a new therapist and it had been a few years since the last one. The last one was a little bout of depression. And I didn't really know how to handle it. So the last one was three, four years ago. And that was that. Then this one, <laughs> When I was seeking a new counsellor, therapist, whatever you want to call it, support mechanism is, is an even nicer way of putting it rather than all of these, you know, big sort of scary words like therapy and that. Um, when I was seeking out this new support mechanism, I just felt like I wanted someone to just prop my back up a little bit. I wasn't feeling bad. I didn't feel any specific way. There was one specific reason I wanted to speak to him, which is quite a personal reason. It's to do with my dad and his impending death and the fact we wasn't talking and things like that. Would I feel guilty if he died and I didn't reach out or put an olive branch out, those kind of things. So I was it was more of an exploratory process for me. And I really didn't like the service I received off of this therapist I, I was visiting two or three times and you know, charging me £110 an hour. And, and forgetting people's names on the, the next session. And I was, you know what, this is not for me. So then my mum comes to visit and anyone who knows me knows that my mum, anyone who doesn't know me, I'll explain. And anyone who does know already knows my mum. But for people who don't know, my mum is the guru of positive psychology. She's, you know, NLP master practitioner, multiple degrees in sort of positive psychology and sort of the way we speak and sort of display ourselves to the world. Very smart woman, very educated woman, and I've always aspired to sort of that mindset. It's been a big impact and sort of influence on me and the way I've conducted my business. Now, she came to visit me, and when she left, I felt like she had something to say. And it's, as you grow up and you sort of grow a little bit away from your parents, and then I've lived on my own for years now, and you start to lose a little bit of that bond, but you'll never lose that feeling of, you've got something to say, just say it like, and she didn't know how to say it. So then later that night when she'd got home and we, we were our separate ways, she messaged me 
I think you'd really do well working with this guy. He does the same work I do. Um, and basically, the way I read the message was, I really want to help you. I feel like the work I do would help you, but I'm your mum and you might want to discuss me or your dad or whatever, and it's a bit of a conflict of interest. Completely understood. Who am I to judge my mother's judgment of where I'm at? Um, so I paid the money. I didn't tell her I'd booked this course at first. And it's funny, actually, because thinking back on the decision to not tell her was almost me doubting the process. But about three weeks into me doing the work with a guy, I said to her, by the way, I'm working with Fidel, the guy you recommended. And she said, oh, I'm so pleased. Why didn't you tell me? I said, I just wanted to do the work first and sort of say, is it transformational? Is it not? And within like two or three weeks, I was seeing like a, a big transformation in my own mindset and sort of outlook. So uh, that's why I did the work. I did the work because I was nudged in that direction by someone who cared for me, part of my support system, part of the people who really care. You know, you, everyone who's got friends and family and loved ones, there's only really a few people that each people of each person has got individually that actually supports them in different directions. Um, someone you can really rely on for a, a bit of support. And we all like to think our mums and our dads are, are, are those people. Luckily for me, my mum is a support system for me when I needed it. And she saw I could do with a bit of a push in that direction. And she gave me, you know, a resource. And I used mm -hmm. that resource. That was that was my push. I think I don't think I would have found someone like him without my mum. So I'm really pleased to have done the work and been recommended. Am I allowed to say who your mum is? Yeah, of course. So for the listeners, George's mum's uh, Denise Mortimer, who obviously has done this podcast. Um, she'll be released before this, so so the listeners hopefully would have already heard from her. But yeah, your mum is an incredible woman, and I I, I kind of wanted to touch on this, but I didn't know if you you wanted to to talk about it. But uh, what was it like growing up with your mum? Because for me, for instance, my mum wasn't. Uh, my mum's not entrepreneurial at all and I was a lot closer to my mum than my dad growing up my dad was very entrepreneurial but my mum wasn't so like, to have that sort of like I think I think boys are always closer to their mum to have that figure very much in that world already like that must have had a huge like impact on on how you are now yes and no um, I'm sure my mum will watch this episode so I'll be selective with my words but we don't all practice <laughs> preach as well as we like to think we do and she'll be nodding as I say that so I had a good upbringing there was nothing wrong with my upbringing I've had nothing but love and affection and support in the right ways um, but I felt personally like I took what I wanted from the information she gave me at a young age and manifested it positively in my own sort of ways again maybe that's alpha energy 30 year old man still feeling in my prime energy speaking maybe at 50 years old that answer slightly different but like from where i am right now i my mum provided information and resources and you know made me watch the secret at 14 years old i could have just been a kid sitting on my phone and switched off to that i liked the idea of this cosmic ordering and like the law of attraction and stuff and so many people get fucked up about the law of attraction and watch one TikTok video and think they get it. And it's like, I don't even get it. But like in moments, you can see it's a real thing. Like it's not this like hoodoo magic, but I really love the idea that, you know, to visualize is to materialize. And, and 
that was the main thing I took from my childhood. My mum gave me this idea that like, if you can see it, you can hold it, you can you can own it. Like, so I really like that. And my mum comes from a really good. Her her dad, my granddad, the Italian side, was like an extraordinary businessman as well. So like, I can't help but think that she's got that blood. And because he was, I was so young when he died, and I really wish that I'd met him as an adult. I take as much from my mum as I can in terms of those like business lessons and stuff, you know. Yeah, I um, I mean, I I for the last three years or so, I suppose, I've been really sort of like on that path of energy. I've always since since probably about I was seventeen, eighteen. I've been on the mindset of you think what like what you put out into the world is what you get back but the last sort of three years i've been more on the mindset of like self-help self-development but i've not really done anything about it i'm sort of like just scratching the surface i bought crystals which i mean if they're placebo effects then brilliant it will still work if they're not then obviously what's the, the harm of having them kind of thing like, i'm not 100 percent sure on it all but the podcast i've done with your mum it really helped me understand and, and open my eyes to, to a lot what I kind of been scratching the surface on, kind of like like flirting with the idea with. And then to listen to your mum talk and how passionate she is and, and sort of like see obviously how you you've come out as well again. Like we are mates, obviously, like there's 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 a lot of bias in this probably. But there's a long time we wasn't friends and I knew of you and I always sort of Envy's not the right word. Looked up. I always looked up to what you was doing and what you was achieving. And then when I started, obviously, working with Darren, um, who's obviously your, your mum's husband, your your stepdad, learning more about your mum then and then learning more about you and then obviously becoming friends with you and then learning even more about your mum, it was like it all kind of made sense. But I suppose in a roundabout way, being... Being a kid who grows up in that environment, you kind of rebel to what your parents are teaching you. So I kind of understand what you mean by it was like deep set, deep set inside you what sort of set you on that path, but you didn't really see it was setting you on that path because obviously it's your mum. And then in your eyes when you're a hormonal 13 14 year old teenager your parents are always wrong and you're always right kind of thing i fully appreciate what you're saying um i don't know i feel like i got the golden boy treatment a little bit from my mum maybe because my sister was a little bit off the track sort of her how she sort of decided to do life in her teens um you know each to their own and i think she took the limelight away from like if i got back I was kind of given a bit of a free pass, um, you know, for five years in secondary school, I signed my own report card. I don't think my mum even knew I was on report. Apologies, mum. Things like that, I think I kind of just had to coast through sort of my teenage years, knowing I was never going to do well at school or college and sort of, you know, bunking off college and just generally being a bit naughty. But I was never actually a bad kid. Like, I never did anything to, like, cause major concern. So... In terms of lessons we learn and rebelling against the system, I'd say that came from more my dad's side. Mm. Um, Ex-gangster, fucking still a drug abuser, a womanizer. Everything that you think is really cool when you're 
12, 13, 14, but as you start to grow up, you realise it's actually really poisonous and toxic to your sort of your environment. Um, so I, I had two different, very polarising effects on me. And mm. in the last year or two, and the work I've done with this Fidel, have I realised sort of how deeply impacted some of the stuff I experienced and witnessed and was part of um, affected me over those years. But at the time, everything's really cool in it. You know, you just you kind of coast along with it and have fun with it and you think it's all really cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, I, I get the whole effect of like my mum having this profound effect on me. It did. But I've got to sit here and take credit for it as well that like I'd done something out of the information I was given. Everyone yeah, was yeah. Given information basis, like she didn't go to the bank manager and Vincent give me a loan. I did that, like you know, and, and it kind of stem. It goes on from there without sort of making it all me, 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 me. This is a podcast about entrepreneurs and how we've done it. I was influenced positively. I was given resources to go and learn and be creative. I was uh, encouraged, but there was you know most mums when you walk into the room at like 19, 20 years old and go, I'm going to go to the bank and see if they'll lend me thirty grand to buy a car. Intervene at that point, like you're not even paying rent at home. You're not just there was nothing. Like no one really cared. It was just like, oh, okay, fuck it, I bought a calf. <laughs> oh, fuck, you actually done it. Yeah, I actually done it. I told you I was going to do it. Like, and before you know, it, everyone thinks you're fucking mad. And the next weekend, they're sitting there having eggs on toast in your calf, like, and things have started. So I got to applaud the fact that they just let me be what I wanted to be. Like, um. You know, if there was any of this like intervention that some parents would have done there, then maybe things wouldn't have worked out the way they have. But, but yeah. I've just got to be really that I was, I was kind of given a free pass to just do what I wanted. I, I flopped college hard, you know, um, tried to join the Marines, got injured, didn't do very well with that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I went down for my PRMC down in Exeter, got injured on the second day, got a train home, sat there in tears for five hours. It was brutal. Okay, what? Okay, I didn't know that either. That was my whole story out of college, yeah. Failed college really badly, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Was maybe going to be a PE teacher. Then kept up on that. Loads of education, which I knew I wasn't good with. Sitting in the classroom is not me. Can't focus. So I tried to join the Marines, spent about six months training for it. Long story short, got injured, got sent home. I was 17 at the time. Um, did a government-funded gym instructor course, became a gym instructor at Harrow Lodge for about six months, blagged my way into a personal training course at a sporter, which was a level above what I was actually trained to, but I told him I was doing that training, which I wasn't, um, to get more money, which I've done really well with. And then the only job I've ever actually like quit, I quit a sporter because it was terribly run, which was testament to what I've just said is they, they closed about six weeks after I quit because they were that bad. Um, the one in the brewery, I don't know if you remember. Mm. And then uh, I got a job with technical drones. And it was like the first, the first job that was over a grand a month, you know, and you see the extra zero on your pay and you think, yeah, I've got to take it. So so I actually forgot you as a technical drone. So did you work in there? Was that what made you think that you had to work for yourself? Because obviously... I've always found that people who, who end up making that jump to work for themselves is in a job they really hate. And it's like, right, I've got a passion to do this or, or I've got an idea to do this. I hate this. Like what I'm doing at the moment, let's just give it a go. 
Not at all. Um, I doubt either of the Murphys are watching this, but I've actually, I know a lot of people. No one watches. Even so, maybe maybe they would because I'm friends with them. But like, mm. I I love that job. It taught me how to problem solve. Like, it, it really like lit up my sort of enthusiasm for problem solving on the job. To this day, I still say it was probably my favourite day to day job. Really? I loved that. Yeah, it was actually really difficult for me to leave because I was getting great overtime. Like, don't get me wrong, overtime at time and a half on like eight pound an hour or whatever that was paying me back in the day isn't exceptional but at the age I was and I was working nights and weekends and sleeping in the van and doing uh doing lining and stuff with Dean Pardy and getting little bits of commission well I was taking two and a half three grand after tax some months as an 18 year old it was it was dreamland for me so I loved it um and leaving it no my decision to open a business was based on the fact that I didn't have a mortgage I didn't have children I didn't have anyone that depended on me and if I flopped I could probably go back to technical drains and, and make my, my losses back in two years, you know? Yeah. So why did you go into drainage then? Because obviously Darren you, you personally... Hello? Darren was, Darren was working there. You know, my stepdad, Darren, was working there. And he rang me, and it was about four or five days after I'd quit a sporter and just said, um, are you looking for... A, have you got a job in a gym lined up? And I was going to be going back to Harrow Lodge and doing some um, some what you call them, kind of thing, doing circuit classes with YMCA twice a week, things like that. I had sort of work there, but it wasn't going to be as, as sort of steady as the drainage job. And Darren said, oh, we've got an opportunity to be an engineer's mate. And, it, you know, it brings in about £1,050 a month, I think it was at the time, mm. plus other time. And I thought, oh, brilliant, I'll take that. Because um, I don't really know what I'm going to do at the time. And I like the idea that, like, within a year or two, I might have my own van and I might be earning commission and... You know, I always rate myself in a position where, like, okay, give me some responsibility and I'll flourish. So mm. I did. I did. Well, I, I, I done it as well. I, um, I went over to TDS as an engineer's mate. We, so I went over as a as a contract manager, but I knew nothing about drainage. But my whole life before that was all sales. Yeah. So I went over as a, te- uh, as a as a mate to learn the drainage and then to go as a contract manager. So it, it was a contract manager, but it was more of like a, a sales job rather than just managing the contracts. Obviously, you've got to bring in the work. And then three, four months I've done as a as an engineer's mate. Honestly, they're such a good time. Right? Yeah. The, the work you do. Yeah, the work you do is, is, is humbling because you're, you're doing drainage. But it's great. It's it's good work. Like when you figure something out, like you could go there after three, four engineers have been there from other companies and not figured this out, and then you go there with with your who, who's in the van with you, figure it out. You think it's like a sense of pride. Like did you? And uh, yeah, like, I I I enjoyed it. Um, obviously, I went I went to done done three months to learn the trade, and then obviously went to the contract manager site. But I uh, listen this. Whether they listen or not, I very much doubt they will. But whether they listen or not, it was it was a good good time, and I have unbelievable respect for for Dave. To be perfectly honest with you, I think what he's achieved and what he's done out of what he's been given in life, I'd love to get him on this podcast. Yeah, I know he would never come on it, but I'd love to get him on this podcast. You might. He's. I'd like to think Dave's mature enough to let bygones be bygones and. 
Anyway, for anyone who doesn't know, Dave, Dave runs Technical Drones, the company we're talking about. And I, I had great times there. I've got nothing but sort of love for those, that, that job. Um, yeah, it was fun for me personally. Like leaving it was just an option for go on your own now before you've got kids and sort of dependents and mortgages and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the only reason I left Technical Drones, to be perfectly honest with you. I, um, I left to start a facilities company with one of my friends. So, again, it was, I left for a reason. But I didn't just leave for the sake of leaving. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, you've got an interesting hobby, George. You like your cars? Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, it's funny, you know, like, I, if you'd asked me six months ago, like, you like your cars, I'd have had this awkward response that was like, trying to gravitate away from the fact that it was like my dad's sort of um, imprint on me because Jaguars specifically are the cars that I've got a, a fond association with. Um, but I've made peace with a lot over the last few months. So I've got to say the love of Jaguars comes from my dad and I just always thought they were such a cool addition to any driveway that he was ever on. You'd walk out of a house and see it in his sleek lines and that smell of like, you know, wood and leather and like, yeah, it sounds rotty, but even like the used ashtray because he was a smoker, like that whole smell just sparks nostalgia in me. And like, you know, if I buy a secondhand Jag nowadays off eBay or like a 4am fucking purchase, wherever it may be, um, I can guarantee it's got notes of those smell in it. And it's not just about the smell, it's the drive, the smell, the feel, the the ambience of the whole vehicle it, it feeds my soul in a certain way so it's not just cars you know at the moment i've got an 840i courtesy car which by anyone's standards even people who drive really really fancy supercars would say that's a really nice car it's an 80 mm. grand car and it does nothing for me i cannot wait to give it back tomorrow and get my xkr which is worth 10 times less but everything in it stirs a bit of passion in my sort of gut and soul you know so I, I don't know. I love Jags. I love the smell. So how many have you had so far? So I know you've had a couple. You've sold. Oh, you sold one. I sold one. So it was, if we go back to that COVID year where we did well, obviously me and Will paid ourselves some sort of due respect, and a bit of a pay. Um, and I went and bought an XJS, which was always a bit of a dream. I really wanted an E-Type. Unbelievable. Mm. And again, when my mum watches this, if she watches this. I remember having a conversation when I was probably about 10 and I think it was a very brief conversation, but it was along the lines of mum, if you've got any money, like put aside for like university or something like that. Cause you kind of see this Hollywood image of like mums and dads who do do okay, you know, put money away for their kid university. So if you've got any money, forget it. I'm going to be shit at school and university. Buy me one of these now because it will be worth a lot of money one day. And she should have fucking listened. <laughs> Listen, you would have got one at that age. For ten grand, maybe less. We're talking quarter million quid now for the same car. Really? Swear to God. Swear to God. So what was achievable on my budget a couple of years ago was more of an XJS, which now again, now now E types are unattainable because they're a, they're a supercar breed of finances. The XJS is the next one that people are gonna go, Oh, there's not many of them left. So seventy one as of last year, so probably about sixty this year, um, left on UK roads. So not many of them. Um, and have you got one? Yeah, I've got one in storage. So I'll leave mine in storage because it just want to keep the miles down. And it's a bit of a, 
anti it's like anticlimactic owning one because I don't want to put too many miles on it, but at the same time I want to enjoy it. So I take it out on a couple of nice spring days a year. But other than that, I drive an XKR on a daily basis, which is not good for the environment or my pocket. Um and I actually drive what most people would regard as a proper piece of shit. I drive an XJ40 on a daily basis. It's beautiful. 1993. It's a year year younger than me. Soft cushioned seats, smells damp inside, got ruffled around the wheel arches. But I tell you, it gets comments every day. It's such a lovely car to drive. I bought it for three grand on eBay. <laughs> Was that the one you picked me up in? Red one, maybe. I don't know. No, yeah, no, no. Went, you went out in the XJS. You was actually quite lucky. We nearly spun out on that roundabout, remember? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one's now in storage. Yeah. So oh. Before I. Before I write it off doing something stupid like we was doing. <laughs> I remember we had uh, me, you, and Will in the car. And as you went round and round the bay, I was like, well, that, and I just sat there like, well, if I go, I go. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready for it. <laughs> no, it was nice. Um, if you had advice to give to somebody starting out in the industry, what you're starting out in, what would you give? You need to have energy about your brand, not just your food, your brand. Like, So hopefully Akin will be watching me. Me and Akin have been talking recently. I'm not going to give away the bag, the idea that we've been talking about, but like the way he speaks about this brand he wants to bring together, this infusion of two different cuisines, the energy he brings to the table excites me to want to be part of that project. Now, a lot of people come to me with ideas of let's do this and let's do that. And I think you lack an energy when you speak about it. You lack this like charisma. It doesn't come across with this like gusto that you actually want to do it. You just think that there's a pound note to be made in food. So energy is everything. Energy is really no matter what you do, but like food is energy in itself. If you think of food as an actual like on your plate, it's actually nutrients in itself. It's energy. It's, it's you know, nutrients and energy in itself. And I'm kind of repeating that, but like you need to have the same as what's on the plate. It's really hard to describe, but like mm. passion, you know, I, I think the words overused passion, which is why I'm trying to use the word energy, just like a raw belief in it, a raw sort of like, this is what I want to do. And I have nothing else that's going to be a priority for the next two years. There's my bit of advice. Nothing else will take priority for the next 24 months this is my baby, this must grow. Like you can't get into food and expect it to turn a profit in six months. Impossible. So you mentioned obviously Akin. I want to get Akin on, on the podcast as well. But I feel like anything Akin does is is just pure energy. Like you can't yeah. talk to Akin without smiling. <laughs> Literally, bro, the voice clips he sends me, <laughs> they crease me up, man. <laughs> Yeah, I was with my new girlfriend and he messaged me, uh, oh, bro, I see you wearing these mad garms with your girl and link me up with one of her Latvian things. And... <laughs> he's like, he, mate, Akin, Akin's brilliant. He's one of the clients, to be perfectly honest. I, I love Akin. Yeah. Um, right. Gonna wrap this up, mate, because obviously, getting on, on, well now but last question if you what were your three favourite films of all time 
Wow. I tell you, the first one that pops to mind is Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. What a beautiful story. Like, could if it's on TV, it's on in the background, or I'm watching it, one or the other. Like, I, w- I won't switch it off if it's on TV. Um, big fan of war films. I'm probably going to put Saving Private Ryan up there as well. Two Tom Hanks films, funny enough. Yeah, great actor. Uh, it's really difficult to call it a top three. Just I could easily tell you a few of my top ten. I'm just going to throw it out there. Probably Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Pulp Fiction. Yeah, three, three great films, mate. Now, the reason I ask that is because I, I feel like... The films what make what you attracted to as a, as a child end up becoming your personality as an adult, but I'm still trying to work out whether that's the case or them films shape you as an adult. Do you know what I mean? I understand. Yeah. What are your three films? Oh, no one's actually asked me that. So, Godfather is is my number one by far, um, and. People don't really know the background of my family, but The Godfather is Don Corleone's mom, like, without a doubt. So, Godfather's number one. I think Gladiator, number two. Awesome film. Um, number three. Oh, do you know what? I, I asked everyone this, but I never think about it myself. I'm going to go... The Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo? Yeah. I've never heard of it, I'll have to Google that straight after. Not many people have. But to give a, a summary of it, the main character is a little bit simple, but is getting married to a beautiful woman. And the second lead, so the second main character, is from a very wealthy family and is in love with the woman who the main character is getting involved with. So he kind of sets him up to make the main character go to prison. And the main character ends up in a, a, a French prison in, I don't know where it's set, probably late 1800s, early 1900s. It's, it's Napoleon time. So what's that, like early 1900s, something like that? Um, and then he's in prison and his whole thing is he's at rock bottom. He's in prison. He's never going to get out. He's on an island where no one's ever escaped. He gets tortured every year on the anniversary he gets put in. And he makes, he, he, he comes back. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but he comes back. And that to me is, is a great film because it's, no matter where you are in life, how rock bottom you are, you can always get back on top. And that's, that's, yeah. Mate, watch it. Honestly, you'll love it. Unbelievable film. You know, it's funny the way, just to touch on sort of your ideology behind the reason we might we pick. Scarface always stands out. Not Scarface. Um, Goodfellas always stands out in my mind as probably one of my favourites. But the way he becomes this like, drug addicted kind of snaky scumbag always puts me off that character so we fall in love with that character and then sort of move away from it and 
a lot of what that character does in that film is reminiscent of the way my dad was during my teens. So it's it's the reason I don't pick that film, but I've got to say it's probably one of my favourite films. Yeah, it's so, a notable mention for Goodfellas. Yeah, Frank, it's been a pleasure, brother. Yeah, appreciate it, George.